The term spiritual emergence is often used in conjunction with spiritual emergency, a term used to describe a crisis state in which the process of growth and change stimulated by this emergence becomes so overwhelming and unmanageable that the individual is unable to gracefully return to day-to-day -day functioning because they simply cannot embrace the void. Pathetic earthlings, hurling your bodies out into the void without the slightest inkling of who or what is out here. Is life just some kind of horrific joke without a punchline that we're all just biding our time until the sweet, sweet release of death? Take her to the moon for me, okay? Welcome, friends, to another episode of Embrace the Void, where the weirdness is definitely coming to a middle. I am your host, Aaron Rabinowitz, and my guest this week is Leah Prime, host of The Invisible Night School, author at Substack, and is currently working on a project called We Own the Night, The Legacy of Art Bell and Coast to Coast AM. Leah does work in exotic states of consciousness and spiritual emergence and AI ethics in tech. So we have absolutely nothing in common to talk about, but we're going to try to make it work. So Leah, would you like to say hi to the void? Hey, everyone. I am delighted to be here. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to have you here, and I will be vaguely self-indulgent for a second and say that you slipped into my DMs and said that you enjoyed the content, and I, you know, also enjoy the stuff that you're were putting up on Twitter back before Twitter started to collapse in upon itself like a black hole. <laughs> and I thought we could have a fun chat, even though, you know, we are to some extent, I think, coming from things from a slightly different background, but essentially, you know, especially after just having a chat about high weirdness um, with Eric Davies, I really felt like it'd be fun to, to dive into these issues a little bit more. Um, so to get folks started, do you want to just say a little bit about your background and what brings you to this world? Sure. I would love to. So I've had the great good fortune of an extremely interdisciplinary and cross-disciplinary background. I... My first career was in rare books and manuscripts, which really introduced me to a lot of philology, history, theology, historiography associated particularly with different Western religious traditions, particularly Christian mysticism and, and early uh, Jewish printing. And I've subsequently gone on to work in technology, again, in these very cross-disciplinary spaces, particularly around marketing science, algorithmic marketing, applied AI, machine learning. And one of the things that continually strikes me is not just the technologies that we use, but particularly how people and humans relate to them. And I mean this both in a very direct and applied sense when we're talking about things like AI, machine learning. Um, I know GPT-4 just came out. I've been hmm. watching popular responses to that, but also um, in a more mysterious. Great. Yeah, it's, it's very fascinating, but also in, in a, I would say a larger, more tremendous sense of how humans engage with technology almost as a magical tool or as a tool to hmm. explore um, the world around us and the states within us. So does that relate to your terminology around spiritual emergence? Do you see this as like, this is sort of a transcendent process for human beings? 
You know, I think of spiritual emergence as a distinct thing. I think of it as something of a a spectrum of experiences that humans have. It's a term that was coined, I believe, by Stanislav Grof around these altered and exotic states that people can either deliberately induce or experience spontaneously. Um, Sometimes if we're going to be totally colloquial, you might hear it called like divine madness or divine Hmm. mania. But I think technology does provide this sort of numinous insight into ourselves and also tells a a very compelling story about how we understand and relate to both ourselves and to the world. And also it's honestly, it's a whole lot of fun watching people popularly engage with AI tools that have, uh, I think for the last couple of years, largely been under the purview of very specific technology environments. So watching them hit mainstream and become new tools that people use to gather information and process the world around them has been really fascinating. Mm. Can you give an example of like where you feel like you see this kind of spiritual emergence through human beings interacting with technology or AI or, you know, something in that domain? You know, I, to be honest, I don't really see it happen too much in technology. I think of spiritual emergence very much as an artifact of particular spiritual practices uh, or engagements. But I do think what these tools do is they provide basically unfettered and comprehensive access to materials and resources that have historically either been inaccessible or difficult to find and source. Mm -hmm. So I, I guess what If I were to tie this together, I think there's a very compelling argument to be made around the democratization of knowledge and also that this is a factor in, I I think, something of the the renaissance around spirituality that we're witnessing right now, that practices and lineages that have historically been occult or esoteric or hierarchical are now much more broadly available to people to incorporate into their own practices um, and, Mm -hmm. and own spiritual identities. So you see it as sort of like a broadly uh, a, a good process because it's largely built by the dissemination of actual sort of valuable information primarily? Or do you see I'm it not... as sort of a more mixed process than that, I guess? Yes, I would say it's a mixed process. I'm generally hesitant to ascribe like value judgments onto this. And I say that because mm. while I personally am largely in favor of the democratization and open access of information, um, when we're talking about particular spiritual practices or meditation practices, you know, this is something Daniel Ingram talks a lot about actually in some of his interviews. You know, th- there's a very deliberate reason a lot of these practices have been held within lineages and through initiations. And it's because they frequently can result in some degree of ontological shock or ontological degradation. Um, and mm-hmm. without, I would say, the appropriate preparations and background, people engaging in some of these practices, like, you know, extended meditation practices or, or psychedelic experiences or whatever, they can frequently go into these experiences basically lacking the tool set to appropriately integrate and understand what's happening to them. Mm-hmm. You know, by, by way of example, I would say like an ego, an ego dissolution experience or an ego death experience, you know, if you're going in appropriately well-armed or at mm-hmm. least with some context about what you're going to experience and, and what it actually can uh, feel like, these can be extremely transformative and powerful and ultimately positive experiences. But if you're unprepared for what ego dissolution actually is like, these can also be enormously traumatic, dissociative, and extremely uh, difficult and painful experiences to go through. So I'm always a, I would say, ultimately, I'm a substantial believer in providing people the requisite frameworks and Mm -hmm. kind of backstops to safely navigate these sort of practices or states in ways that don't fundamentally harm them and instead can lead to a more totalistic understanding of themselves and their place kind of in the universe. 
Okay. So, I mean, to me, that does feel like a lot of sort of good value judgments about like, you know, it's good to have a broader understanding of the world and we can achieve that through, you know, exotic states of consciousness as long as, you know, you apply the right kinds of set and setting or things like that, mm -hmm. um, which all of which like I agree with as a, as a fellow psychonaut. And you know, the the tricky part, and I think you're you're right to sort of be sort of cautious about just saying, well, this is all great, you know, gung-ho kind of thing, is that like there is a lot of concern around misuse, abuse, uh, yes. risk within these kinds yes. of communities. And, you know, I, I sort of, I think back to like reading through and talking about the high weirdness stuff, like even the folks who did go into these things, knowing this stuff and taking all of that very seriously, pretty had a pretty low success rate of coming out of it without you know you, you called it sort of ontological shock for common people that would be a kind of like i don't fucking know what's real anymore <laughs> kind of vibe right and it's and, you know like we don't want to um use derogatory terms but i think you could say that like it can trigger versions of what we would think of as different kinds of mental illness and that some mm -hmm, of the like certainly. the great psychonauts sort of ended up in states of like severe mental damage as a result of their kind of their drug use in these ways um, so I guess I wonder, like, how do we how do we know that we're getting a hold of that and doing it properly um, when when there's been this sort of continuous ongoing problem within the community that way? Oh, my goodness. You are touching on one of my favorite subjects, and I'm not sure you, you, you realize it just yet. Okay, great. Um, so, like, um, I, I'm a major proponent of exotic states of consciousness as um, healing processes and as processes for deeper communal and self-connection and connection with the numinous. What I will say is I'm deeply disturbed sort of by the categorical permissiveness associated with the psychedelic community right now um, and this sort of treatment of psychedelics as a panacea. I tend to think of them basically as power tools um, where if you're mm. not appropriately trained, um, <laughs> yeah. right, if you're not appropriately trained, like, of course, these things can be enormously disruptive. The other thing, though, that I've found associated with um, psychedelics, and I also will say this more broadly about sort of the conventional therapeutic processes in the Western tradition that we have right now, which is that um, so much of these treatments basically, um, rather than focusing on an integrated wholeness or wellness or genuine healing process are much more oriented around basically what will return you to being a productive worker as soon as possible. Basically, if you do enough LSD, is it going to make you write better JavaScript versus, mm -hmm. you know, if you sit with ayahuasca or you attend a holotropic breathwork retreat and have this sort of communal holistic experiences, how are those actually going to lead to um, a more comprehensive and depth of healing? Um, and and mm -hmm. I think, you know, what we're seeing emerge uh, in a lot of the psychedelic space, we certainly have seen it in the cannabis space, um, is um, basically the subservience of the powers of these tools to, uh, honestly, to the capitalist system. And I realize this sounds very much like pass me the bong, bro, like freshman college kind uh -huh. of spot. But um, I, I do think that um, there's always this push to find um, systems or tools that will just, um, again, allow people to enter as productive members of society rather than addressing more deeply rooted and deeply seated causes. Um, and, and I think the other side of this coin, and I've certainly been party to a number of these conversations, where you listen to some asinine tech bro talk about how yet another brilliant mind has been ruined by psychedelics and Buddhism or meditation, because it leads to this sort of... Um, lack of attachment 
to ambition or drive or motivation that historically, Mm -hmm. you know, so much of our economy, particularly in the technology sector, has relied upon in order to generate enormous profits. Um, I mean, what what we really see um, basically is... Uh, I think that these tools, when applied appropriately uh, and deeply um, and courageously, honestly, also lead to a fundamental refactoring in how uh, individuals see success and meaning. And Mm -hmm. um, those senses of success and meaning are basically oppositional to um, what our current state's definition of success and meaning are. Um, and so in that yeah. sense, you know, I, I, I'm super compelled by psychedelics and by spiritual practice and by Buddhism and by meditation, because um, I, I do think individually and collectively, we're very well served by having a population that is deeply um, focused on healing from its wounds. But I also understand, too, that the sort of landscape we live in economically and socially, culturally and politically is effectively completely predicated on us living perpetually in a state of woundedness in a state of precarity and alienation Mm. there's no ethical drug consumption under capitalism (laughs) exactly exactly yeah well and it is like it it is a ongoing mindfuck kind of situation to use the technical term of our people which is to say like high weirdness you know it is it is in many ways fundamentally libertarian but i also think it is fundamentally anti-capitalist whether it would you know like whether the early progenitors would have been all all acknowledged as much or not like what they were trying to push back on was to me a very specific kind of cultural mindfuck that was about getting people to adopt a very narrow perspective on reality which Mm -hmm. cohered to certain sort of narrow understandings of materialism but also made people very functional you know members of the the factory state in that kind Mm -hmm. of sense um and they were trying to encourage people to you know reassess that there are alternative lifestyles that are actually worth living and it, it does i think you know, I personally, obviously, and I'll, I'll try not to get, you know, make the whole conversation about this, but like, sure. I do think part of the, the counter mind fuck is the recognition that like, it is luck all the way down and like, yes. we don't have free will and like, we, you know, no one deserves to suffer. Like, yes. it's just, you know, to quote Bill, you squeegee your third eye, you realize it's just a ride and like, you chill the fuck out a bit about it. Yes. And I think that is like a good thing if done properly. Um, but yes. as you say, right, we're also stuck in a world where you know, if you're going to get these things legal, you've got to sell it to a particular group of old, rich individuals who will accept it as long as like the right amount of money can be made from it. And like, you know, the other sort of cultural taboos around it get unwound, you know, properly. So like, you know, balancing all of those things is really tricky. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And I think, I think the other thing too, you know, look, we have extremely poor narratives and, um, I would say Western materialist culture for understanding, integrating and contextualizing um, whether psychedelic experiences or experiences of spiritual emergence. Um, And and I bring this up because there is, there has been historically, and I think even still is this predilection to pathologize these kinds of experiences, to treat them um, categorically as mental illness um, or mania or psychosis. Um, Mm -hmm. And um, of course, individualize, um, what 
to me feel like extremely healthy responses to deeply unhealthy systems. Um, and this is something uh, I'm a huge fan of Jules Evans, and he wrote this book called Breaking Open, which is, well, he, he edited it. It's a compilation of essays from people that have gone through some kind of spiritual emergence in their process back to wholeness after it. Um, and I, I do think, uh, and this is something, you know, whenever we jump into ufology, I'll probably touch on this again, but mm. we just have such poor narratives for understanding the human experience of the numinous or the mysterious. And the reality is that these kinds of experiences are very common. Um, they can be deliberately induced, of course, with exogenous psychedelics, with breath work, with fasting, with sleep deprivation, with sensory deprivation, but they can also happen spontaneously. Like one of the most common places for people to experience a spontaneous spiritual emergence is at an airport. Super fascinating because it's this like really emotionally loaded liminal space. There's a lot of kind of chaos. Um, and I say all of this because um, one of the things that's become very evident to me as I've become, uh, I would say, more visible around this subject, speaking more about it, speaking with people more about it, talking much more candidly about my own experience with it, is that, um, you know, we tend to internalize that these are very unique um, and individual kinds of events but the reality is that they're extremely common these are common events they happen between like i think between five and twenty percent of the human population at some point in their lifetime but they again are things that we just have such poor narratives and such poor um systems for understanding and examining these experiences and so instead they tend to fall into the trappings of basically the the medical tradition which treats these as um, a pathology to be treated rather than as an event to be integrated and, and treated with respect and awe. Yeah. And I'm, I'm sympathetic to the concern about certain kinds of pathologizing of exotic states of consciousness. Um, I think um, at the same time, as you were just discussing, you know, the, the failure rate for psychonauts to come back without something that I think it, there's a reasonable way to call it a pathology is pretty is pretty high like there's a there there is a problem here where like you're you're messing with power tools as you said i think i think mm -hmm. the power tool metaphor is perfect i love that and I'm, I'm gonna totally you know meditation is like having a little you know boy scout or girl scout knife or whatever right and like uh this, these are hand saws and if you you know you screw around you're gonna cut your finger off and and that, that can happen to people mentally speaking um and, and like what i get worried about when we sort of talk about how do we avoid conspiracism how do we avoid the spiral into really um, bad places is how do we come up with a distinction between yes. valuable exotic states of consciousness and oh that's not good let's let's help you yes. out let's pull you back from that kind of thing yes yeah that's it, it does you know, it's like the the Whole Foods to uh, Q pipeline, right? Like, right. how do we sort of selectively engage with um, behaviors or activities that undermine our ontologies and epistemologies without going full scale um, mm -hmm. uh, conspiracism or um, I don't want to say woo because I'm definitely full scale woo. Um, but, I mean, but know, that, 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 so is the, question, that is the correct right? term, even in like in a non-pejorative sense. Like what we literally mean is, you know, uh, I'm actually, can you just um, real quick, I wanted to ask you to just sort of just sure. briefly explain what you mean by noumenal. Because like I, you know, from a philosophical background, I have one understanding of that meaning. Um, but I would imagine a lot of listeners aren't going to necessarily have heard that term or might be curious, you know, what the specific details are of your usage of it. So when you talk about these numinous experiences, what are you what are you talking about there? Yeah, so I use the term numinous or the numinous experience as a umbrella term that encompasses 
any kind of human encounter with the divine, with the transcendent, with the mystical, with the ecstatic, anything that effectively requires some degree of Gnostic or participatory knowledge or experience mm, to fully understand okay. rather than simple prepositional knowledge of, say, reading a text or watching a film or something like that. Okay, that's good to know because I come from a background where noumena is, is in contrast with um, phenomena and it's the, sort of the thing in itself versus the thing you phenomenally experience. Um, so it's good to know that it has that kind of divine or something, you know, I'm not, I'm not sure what the, what the catch-all term would be for all of those things you were saying. I don't love the term natural versus non-natural. Um, but like, I think there's something else that I want to tie in here that I think is really at play that, that was at play with the original high weirdness folks in their fight against capitalism was this kind of meaning crisis that mm -hmm. we, 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 I do think see rising in modernity with liberalism in particular as a, you know, a positive corrective to being just told what your meaning is. You know, a lot of people end up getting to choose what their meaning is to some extent. And then they end up in a crisis of not feeling like they necessarily know what to choose or something. I don't think that religion obviously is the solution, but I do think for a lot of people on the left, the solution ends up being something in this space that we are talking about here. Do you think that that's why a lot of people come to these kinds of like activities or beliefs is because they are feeling a crisis of meaning or are there other kinds of um, causes that you think are kind of driving interest here besides just actually believing in the things? That's a, you know, that's a great question. Um, it, you know, my response is kind of twofold. The first is I think there's almost a mimetic element here where, um, you know, I was watching people kind of go into these experiences to kind of disengage from the very conventional um, sense of success or productivity and to go out in their own search of sense making and meaning. Um, and then I also think that a... Look, at the end of the day, I think we live in a society that is collectively and individually extremely traumatized. And at a certain point, mm -hmm. I do think that this reaches a breaking point with many people. Um, I'm sitting here in my mid 30s and I can I would run out of fingers and toes if I were to count the number of colleagues, professionals, academics, friends um, that I've watched basically go through some kind of uh, like we're calling it a meaning crisis. People who have attained everything that is effectively on the conventional list of list of success, which includes me, right? Like I'm a former executive, like car and driver, private plane, uh, you know, like living the high life when it comes to business performance and professionalism, and also uh, attaining that state and recognizing just how kind of not just spiritually and emotionally vacuous it was, but also this sense that. Um, there was uh, effectively no meaning to be found in it. Um, and I realized that this is this is about as like crystal shop yoga studio as I could conceivably get, right? Like Leah's mm -hmm. big lesson from the last year is, hey, it turns out money isn't everything. Um, but, you know, I, I do think that there is basically this entire generation, and I think we see it particularly in the technology field. And I say that because a lot of people, I think, are increasingly aware of the deleterious effects of the kind of technologies that they work on through the extractive attention economy, um, through surveillance technologies, through um, things like defense um, initiatives. And um, are starting to realize uh, or wake up to the fact, um, either through their own experience or through watching others, um, that uh, there's a 
these these sort of conventional feelings of success um, are effectively almost immaterial when they completely distract you from the real world lived experience of life. Um, it, I mean, it strikes mm. me constantly. Uh, I mean, everything we touch all day is plastic, right? Everything we see is screens. We live deeply, deeply in the society of the spectacle in environments that uh, overwhelm and saturate all of our nervous system. Um, they leave us hyperstimulated um, and, and deeply alienated from one another. And I think at the end of the day, once you start realizing, hey, like true meaning or true happiness or fulfillment is found in, say, connection with others, communal responsibility, um, play, joy, creativity. I mean, these are things that cannot be effectively monetized or productized very well, as particularly at scale. And as a result, um, you know, do not serve kind of the, the capitalist monolith. And in turn, um, I think, tend to be denigrated. I mean, we, we watched a whole a whole generation of technology leaders basically fundamentally denigrate and decry, say, the humanities or the liberal arts. I mean, we have tons of tons of technology leaders who brag about never reading books. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. and, and I mean, these are these are the thinkers that are in many ways um, acting extrajudicially in ways to form the trajectory of humanity. And this to me is like deeply concerning in so many different ways, both from an like both a tactical and a strategic sense, like both in an applied sense and sort of in a, an overarching philosophical sense. Um, particularly since we're sitting, uh, I think in a space right now with humanity, where we're facing some of the largest crises that humanity has ever faced. Um, mm. You know, the idea that some of the leaders shaping this are seem to be fundamentally dissociated and derogatory towards things like compassion or communal obligation um, or social responsibility to me is deeply frightening and deeply concerning. Mm. There's a couple of things I want to touch on in there. I think the issue around crisis is important. I want to come back to that. Um, sure. But I first want to get you to clarify on something because I think there's there's a risk that some of what you were saying there could go in a bad direction. I don't necessarily think you mean it that way, but um, I think it's probably you know uh, something that you see in your community that you might want to touch on as well, which is a risk of an overcorrection into a kind of naturalistic fallacy, right? You're sort of listing why capitalism is bad and you say plastic and screens and overstimulation and stuff. And for a lot of people that leads right to the tradcath lifestyle, right? That leads oh, to, sure. you know, a, it, it like, leads to finding a trad wife, having vault, 20 kids. Back, yeah, yeah. back to blood <laughs> and soil. It gets there yep. really quickly in a frightening way. Yes. Um, and I, like, I'll be honest with you, I like plastic and and screens. Like, I love my computer. I, you know, the, the the thing you were saying earlier about how we have access to knowledge beyond previous humans could ever possibly imagine comes via my screens. You know, I love them for that. And like, plastic saves lives in a very, very important kind of way because of its weird traits. You know, we overuse it, but it's still also a miracle in a variety of ways. So, like, how do we balance those things? How do we, you know, reject modernity while also embracing stuff in that yes. kind of way yeah you know that's that's a really great point and i and i say that honestly as someone who's watched a number of um i would say formerly super progressive friends kind of slip into that you know blood and soil kind of orthodoxy um mm -hmm. that seems anti to be an, yeah anti-vaxxerism um or it, it is orthodoxy. Um, and to me, it's also deeply concerning because it's one thing if those kinds of ideas were to emerge in a state where we have already kind of addressed and dismantled extraordinary institutional systems of power. But the reality is that they just further um, support really harmful uh, systemic institutions, uh, in my opinion. Um, but, you know, I, I think, you know, look, like, let's be real. We, we are thinking humans. We are able to do 
um, parts of one thing and parts of another thing. It doesn't have to be completely binary of all tradcath or all uh, mm-hmm. ultra modern accelerationist plastic touching. Um, I keep falling back to this idea of like solar punk, right? Like these ideas mm-hmm. that our lives can be tremendously enhanced by elements of modernity that are done in a regenerative and thoughtful fashion. I mean, having, you know, having at my fingertips access to almost the entire wealth of humanity's knowledge, this is extraordinary. This is miraculous. Um, but I'm not necessarily sure it uh, necessitates having a cell phone that needs to repla- needs to be replaced every 18 months due to planned obsolescence. Sure. Um, you know, and I think basically we are, um, I think that there are extraordinarily interesting applications of technology that to me speak to the heart in real ex- exciting parts of technology. Things like I, I'm super fascinated by non-hierarchical systems and distributed autonomous organizations and ways to leverage technology that allows us to revision and reimagine not only our present, but also our future. Um, and I think that there is really extraordinary, exciting stuff going on in these spaces. Um, but unfortunately, I also think some of the really exciting and extraordinary stuff won't actually happen until we've effectively burned out the resources associated with like hyper growth and hyperscale capitalism. Um, you know, mm-hmm. like I can I can talk about Web 3.0 and talk about how DAOs are really fascinating and then also say like, hey, Bitcoin kind of sucks and like, uh, mm-hmm. you know, the cryptocurrency situation and its resource drain is um, not exactly a... Um, beacon on the hill of um what sustainable technology may look like i mean at some point the party has to stop and we have to get real about the fact that like we are running out of resources we are dealing Mm -hmm. with a climate crisis we are dealing with um you know we are basically on the precipice of um multiple colliding crises um and having access to 24/7 access to all this technology has also you know created an created a culture of distracted geniuses we're all i mean I don't want to project onto mm-hmm. you, but I'm certainly super addicted to my technology. Um, yeah, I'll take the distracted part at least. I don't, um, you know, I don't know the other word, but distracted for sure. Sure. Um, no, and, and I think like these are all like good points about you know like we are a pro solar punk podcast. Um, I was actually just recently on a, a listener recommendation reading Psalm for the Wild Built um, by Becky awesome. Chambers, I believe. And it's, it reads to me as one of the best sort of beautiful accounts of a version of solar punk that I could really get into. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, I'm sympathetic to that and it is sort of, it is this chicken and egg problem endlessly of like, how do you, how do you get there from here in this, you know, currently like dystopian low capital kind of state? Um, so like you know we have to acknowledge that like trying to help people with psychedelics can only do so much when their material reality is limited in various kinds of ways um and i you know we have to take that seriously as as psychonauts when we are encouraging people to do things that like making people aware of just how fucked things are doesn't always help them sometimes it just makes them right, really right, miserable exactly. you know exactly. like right you just once you see the fenords you're just like you just see them and then it's just horrible because you see them and that's depressing um yes. so i'm not saying you know don't do them i'm just saying you know it's it's not clear that they can solve all the problems we want them to solve unfortunately and they may cause some highly different problems um but this brings me to another thing that you mentioned in your in your point there earlier about crisis um and this mm-hmm. is something that comes up a lot in in like the skepticism debunking conspiracism kind of world where you know a reoccurring theme in a lot of people's stories where they end up in these spaces is they started from a place of crisis it could have been a meaning crisis it could have been like a health crisis or a family crisis or a financial crisis but in some way they are in crisis and i think there is a reason to be concerned sort of 
initially that someone in that state is vulnerable. Um, it is certainly a, a, a position in which people can easily be picked off by, you know, predatory cult behaviors or things mm -hmm. like that. Um, but it is also arguably a place from which people, you know, reorient themselves and learn on and understand things, right? So not all change or, or you know, insight in crisis is necessarily a bad thing. Um, mm -hmm. But I'm curious how you think about how do you distinguish, again, the sort of between this is a positive direction to take this crisis in versus this is the beginning of a spiral in this way? Yes. It, you know, that's a great question. Um, and I, I'd actually like to answer it very personally, um, mm -hmm. which is to say um, about a year ago, I took a sabbatical uh, professionally and it was very much driven by crisis, just an enormity of, of grief, um, trauma, um, pain, suffering, kind of, kind of the, the whole thing. Um, and it, um, you know, I, I think when approached well and spaciously, crises are, you know, like, it's like Ram Dass says, right? Like, like some fires burn and some fires purify. Um, I think crises provide a, a space in an environment when um, well examined and experienced to truly get a grasp on one's priorities and purpose. Um, but again, we also, you know, I, I think the sort of opportunistic cult behavior or gravitation towards extremist thought is very much an artifact of the fact that our current moment, again, lacks so much when it comes to assisting people in navigating crises. Um, so much, for instance, again, of our mental health system is really just predicated on returning people to work or getting them back to being productive members of society without this more comprehensive um, group of interventions ranging from, you know, spiritual wellness to physical wellness to diet and environment, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and it's, um, it's extremely difficult because you know, it, it also falls again deeply into the trappings of what it means to have a privileged life, right? I know so many people who are so wounded and so traumatized who would benefit deeply, not only themselves, but also, you know, the uh, the um, benefits that subsequently propagate through their personal social mm -hmm. connections, like who could benefit from these kinds of experiences. But, you know, again, pe most people live so precariously um, that mm -hmm. to have the kind of space to explore this and truly interrogate what's going on internally um, is so, is basically one of the greatest hallmarks of privilege. Um, mm. And this is something, you know, I personally struggle with this a lot because, um, I mean, there have certainly been points in my life, well into my 30s, actually, where I would have never been able to take time off like this and to do the sort of depth and inner work required to, um, I think, return to a sense of wholeness and integration. Right. Um, on top of the history of like, because of what you look like, you can get away with doing a bunch of drugs that other people are in jail for kind of thing. Exactly. Exactly. Yes. And, and I think like in this, you know, at the heart of this, I also think, um, you know, this is sort of one of my core tenets, which is this idea that none of us are free from the obligation of helping other people. Um, and I think that one of the one of the ways this shows up, at least for me, is to be a vocal proponent of these things, to speak very candidly about grief and trauma and integration and spirituality and psychedelics in order to create um, 
a space where these subjects are not only taboo, but I can speak as someone who is by all metrics conventionally successful and accomplished and also say, I am accomplished and successful as a result of these practices and as a result of doing things that are perhaps outside the standard paradigm of my demographic. Um, Mm -hmm. And I do think that that's a responsibility that falls squarely on the shoulders of the most privileged people within these spaces in order to make space, in order to um, campaign on behalf of people who may either be lacking in agency or a voice or who may have otherwise been criminalized or um, ostracized for their for similar behaviors uh, historically. Like I see that as part and parcel to the, just the responsibility of being um, a participating member in society. Mm-hmm. While we are on the topic of like you personally and your experiences, can I ask, are there particular like concrete beliefs or claims that others would consider supernatural or unsupported or, you know, fringe or exotic or something um, that you have uh, either believed previously or have come to believe since going on your sabbatical? Yes, that's, that's a a great question. Um, In a way, I would say that who I was prior to my sabbatical is a categorically different person than who I am now. But I would also say paradoxically that who I am now is more and it's like it's like I didn't change I intensified right I'm probably the most myself now than I have been in my entire life I live a much more integrated life my life is not compartmentalized there's not professional Leah and conference speaker Leah and podcast Leah and athlete Leah there is just one holistic Leah that does all of these things in an integrated fashion and presents all of herself in all spaces and again I want to momentarily acknowledge this is deeply privileged. There are so many people who for so many different reasons are not able to present a fully integrated holistic sense of self in all the spaces in which they occupy. Um, I would say that um, I I have always had uh, a substantial intellectual preoccupation with the mysterious, with the mystical. Um, I was very drawn into the Catholic mystics in my early 20s. I was raised Jewish. Um, have always had a fascination with exotic and expanded consciousness. Um, but this was always uh, prepositional knowledge. This was always like I was reading books. I was watching lectures. Like I grew up on a steady diet of Art Bell and Terrence McKenna and Robert Anton Wilson and P.K. Dick. I grew up with very progressive parents that, you know, were extremely mm. intellectually open with, with me. Um, but in, in late 2021, I went through what I basically will categorize as a protracted experience of spiritual emergence. And this, um, you know, the way this showed up for me, uh, and I joke about this a lot, is um, it first really started with a very strong intellectual preoccupation with complexity and complex systems. Um, My background's in information science and informatics, um, and I was kind of going deeper and deeper into this. I read the Bhagavad Gita, um, and I was also delving deeper into meditation uh, and breath work and yoga practices. Um, And I say all of this to say that um, what felt to me very much like Gnostic knowledge, participatory knowledge, um, is basically the state of non-duality, the sense of all things actually just being one big thing that interact and intersect with itself. And of course, this is not something that can be demonstrably proven through the scientific method or empiricism or rationalism. This is something that um, like my deeply, you know, fundamentally challenged and refactored some of my most deeply held beliefs about sort of the fundamental nature of reality. Um, now, it's it's very interesting because I still also engage with reality in a, an extremely materialist and rationalist perspective because, you know, professionally mm-hmm. I'm required to and um, that's part of my brain brain still works very much in that way. Um, but um, I, I think that 
for me, really what happened was the transition was made from this is something I'm intellectually fascinated by and interested in to this is now something I have experienced, right? I mean, if we're going to be truly lewd, it would be like, I have gone from watching pornography to actually having sex, right? And like, mm-hmm. how do you explain the two difference, the, the two experiences? They're, I guess, semi-related. Um, but, uh, you know, it's something that you can really only, I think, discuss obliquely, right? Like, like discussing the ineffable, uh-huh. it, it's so difficult to wrap language about it. Or, or well, so yeah, so th- this is interesting because certainly I'm sympathetic to non-dualism in various ways. I um, think it's valuable to have experiences where the boundary between the self and the other gets thinner. And we ra- realize that like a lot of our sense of otherness is something that our brain is doing for us. Um, at, you know, at, at the same time, like I- I'm curious because I also... You know, I was listening to you doing one of your um, uh, Invisible Night Schools and you were talking about how maybe we can bring the UFO stuff into this, right? You were talking about how you engage with folks who have these experiences. It seems like you think that they're connected to this other psychedelic, liminal, you know, numinal kind of stuff. Um, But you yourself, I believe, don't identify as having had any sort of like UFO experience. Some folks, you know, like Graham Hancock or or Joe Rogan or those kind of folks will say that like you you get to the aliens via the psychedelics. Um, But that is not your experience personally. You've never come across them in any like machine elves while you were tripping. (laughs) You know, yeah. So um, one of the things, so what I will say about ufology, I am super fascinated by experiencers, right? Like by people that have narratives and cosmologies and histories and experiences associated with entities. Uh, An entity, of course, is this like super ambiguous term. It could be non-human intelligence. It could be literal aliens, like extraterrestrials, whatever. Um, It struck me very much as I was listening to experience or narratives that really they are talking about experiences of spiritual emergence. They're talking about things that humans have experienced basically across all time, all place, all cultures, all theologies. Um, But in our current moment in in modernity, again, we lack these narratives, we lack these frameworks, and even we lack language to collectively understand and um, explore and individually and collaboratively experience these things. And so I'm always deeply fascinated by how people who have these experiences, um, and they're generally some of the most profound and substantial experiences of these people's lives, how they then make the leap from these experiences directly to ufology. Like, how do they make those Mm. connections? Um, Because, you know, for me, like, I would never, like, I would never call myself an experiencer in any sense. I would say, look, I have had some really strange things happen through meditation, through exotic states, through spiritual emergence, but I have never made the direct connection to anything associated with ufology. Um, But I also think as well, uh, ufology in many respects, um, you know, one of the things Dr. Jeffrey Kripal says that I love is that ufology is basically about everything. It is the story of everything. It becomes effectively a synecdoche for consciousness, for um, out-of-body experiences, astral projection, meditative states, the rainbow body, all sorts of esoteric and occult practices that have existed throughout history that have basically been rebranded and um, appropriated nomenclature from different fields um, and disciplines in order for people to understand um you know, what they have experienced or encountered. Um, and yeah. I, I, mm-hmm. yeah, I'm sorry, go ahead. 
Well, yeah. So I just, uh, since you're talking about sort of the broad spectrum of like, however, I, I think it is a, a good point to say like everything becomes UFOlogy in a sense. Yes. And then like UFOlogy immediately then becomes anti-Semitism, of course, because. <laughs> yes. Scratch the surface of anything, dude. Yeah. Everything bends towards anti-Semitism. Like that's right, the God's well, honest truth. And it is a weird problem, though. I mean, like I've, I've, I've sort of argued in other places that there are, there are reasons that it does work out that way just because of early adopter bias for Jews as, as like the, the masterminds. Um, <laughs> but like specifically in alien spaces, whether it's ancient aliens, you know, um, uh, again, Graham Hancock, Joe mm -hmm. Rogan, like these folks are promoting a variety of kinds of very concrete claims about aliens and Atlantis and all these kinds of things that are tied to a history of um, broadly speaking, a lot of racism, but also oh, so specifically anti-Semitism. Yes. Right. Yes. How, how do you deal with that in the space? Like, how do you, you know, how do you sort of <laughs> by, yes by showing up by showing up as abjectly Jewish as possible? Quite okay. frankly, <laughs> I'm sure that helps a lot. I'm sure that really yes. makes them feel at ease. Yes. Um, but like, um, you know, like what I mean is, you want to yes and what people are experiencing, right? I, my sense yes. is that you want to be supportive of people's journeys in this kind of sense um how do you do that and also you know tell them look look just because they you know the thing that you saw while you were hallucinating looks jewish doesn't mean that the jews are controlling everything yes uh, i mean we are controlling everything but uh... sure we want them to believe that because then things go worse you know <laughs> you know that's it's a great question um and this is something i struggle with a lot right um i i struggle a lot with engaging with these ideas and subjects when also against a larger backdrop of an epistemological crisis, right? When we're kind of mm -hmm. watching institutional and collective unwinding of consensus reality, we're watching sort of the ultimate degradation of truth and fact. We're living in a post-truth era in many respects. Um, and like, how do you in good faith, uh, and I'm asking this rhetorically because I still don't have a very good answer for this, but how does one in good faith engage with these subjects in ways that don't sort of add on to um, human suffering and onto mm -hmm. uh, anti-Semitism or racism. Um, and this is something, again, like we encounter this in ufology all the time where, yes, in theory, ufology is a bipartisan issue, but the reality is that the people who are going on TV shows, they're going on Tucker Carlson, they're going on Fox News, they are going on uh, Joe Rogan, and these are inherently super political um platforms they're also one right. of the only like the only kinds of platforms that are engaging with this subject in any meaningful sense and i tend to see it um ultimately as like a trojan horse like i don't think tucker carlson really gives a shit about flying saucers or experiencers he cares about undermining institutional confidence um and unwinding consensus reality because this kind of furthers the uh the polarization and benefits sort of his, his media empire um and, right. I and, think, and, and to be fair like yeah, this is sure, where sure. the libertarianism of high weirdness like goes yes. poorly to begin with like there's a there's a paranoia about the government which yes. is partly earned but partly yes. exaggerated right yes. and you like but but like that paranoia that exists in some parts on the left is like dominating our right at the moment and yes. so it seems like you know these spaces are becoming more infected by this kind of right-wing conspiracism and, and vice versa oh for sure for sure yeah and this is something like very candidly i'm watching a lot of this go on right now in sort of the ufo twitter sphere um a, a space mm. that i have very deliberately uh taken a huge step back from um hmm. but yeah we do i mean you, you it's it's a very slippery slope we also find people i mean honestly like we also see ufology become effectively a religion where ufology takes precedence over any other particular value system that someone may have um 
And mm-hmm. as a result, there is a willingness to excuse um, really, uh, quite frankly, disgusting and vile behavior and views that are promulgated by members of this community because those community members are also champions of ufology. So, um, you know, we have figures in this community that are visible that um, constantly say things about how Sandy Hook was faked, how COVID was faked, how Jews harvest children. Um, mm-hmm. And um, this is basically summarily dismissed because they also care about UFOs. And of course, UFOs are the only thing that anyone uh, in ufology actually cares about. And, you know, therefore everything else can be dismissed. Um, you know, I think this is this is a real problem. Um, and, and one of the things I frequently will say about conspiracism, particularly right wing conspiracism, is that um, they're frequently right, but for the wrong reasons. Right. Like you can have very reasoned conversations about like, yes, um, the aggregation of wealth. Uh, at the upper echelons of society has an ultimately deleterious effect on everybody else. But that doesn't necessarily mean that children, sex, child sex slaves are being kept in the basement of a pizza store or a pizza shop. Right. Um, and the conservatives won't agree with you on that first premise either. You know that. Yeah, of right? course Something not. Like, <laughs> of course not. Absolutely disagree with I'm you about the cause. Tonight. I'm of, sure I'm going to get a yeah. lot of nice DMs about this. Uh, yeah. Well, luckily, nobody listens to this show, so you'll be fine. <laughs> um, but like, yeah, I mean, I think there are a couple factors running around here. You have this kind of reactionary attitude. I think you've mentioned sort of essentially kind of a desire for community, right? So meaning yes. for a lot of people is a sense of shared meaning within a community. Um, I'm curious, just to throw into the pot here, would you also say that uh, things that you see, uh, common common sort of things that get pointed to in the, in the literature are people have a, a lack of sense of control, often because yes. they were in a crisis where they are experiencing an acute lack of control and they these conspiracies give them a feeling of control or these beliefs give them a feeling of control or, and relatedly, you know, these things help the universe make sense that like without these things, the universe feels chaotic, random and like uncaring, but with these things, the universe feels more planned, organized, understandable in this kind of way. Do you feel like that's something you see in these communities? Oh, a hundred percent. And this is something, you know, many, many years ago, I started writing a book on uh, basically exactly the subject on conspiracism um, is basically a security blanket for um, encountering the, you know, otherwise kind of existential chaos of human experience. Um, And uh, this is ultimately transformed into this work on Art Bell. Um, And this is something that, you know, I'm actually going to tie it a little bit back to ufology. One of the really fascinating parts of ufology in general is how um, over the decades, the preoccupations of the field have reflected the popular neuroses around technology and around human experience. So, you know, mm-hmm. um, you know, during the 40s and 50s, we're thinking about uh, the Red Menace in Soviet Russia. And in the 80s and 90s, we're talking about hybrids and gen- genetic harvesting and um now, you know, mm-hmm. in the 2020s, we're thinking about consciousness and the mind. Um, and I, um, I, I, I say this to also say that I think conspiracies in general, exactly like what you're saying, provide a legible and logical framework for people to interpret the events around themselves. I think the other thing that it does is it creates a very powerful in-group and out-group. Um, it, it, it creates a sense of camaraderie and shared experience and shared reality, which again creates that sense of community um, mm-hmm. by um, providing uh, facile interpretations of the world around them, right? It, it, particularly, and, and I do think that this also plays into like 
honestly like kind of overarching victim complexes like these ideas that you know Mm -hmm. what happens to me is deliberately happening to me it's not random it's not chaotic i am a deliberate victim of circumstance and the cabal behind these circumstances is nefarious and plotting and they have been around forever Um, you can just say jewish it's always the jews it is always the jews so let me ask you just you know those are a bunch of things that I am sympathetic to, they're not things I would say are true of literally everyone in these spaces. Of course um, not. One push back I sometimes see is that, you know, highlighting those things is essentially a kind of, it's condescending and it's dismissive and you're sort of depriving people of their agency by saying that they're just, you know, getting sucked into these things because of yeah. lack of control or something like that. Do you, you know, do you think that that's true or do you feel like it's, it depends on how you're framing it, how you're saying it, like you have to be... Oh, man compassionate or like how do you you know like how do you go about having those kinds of conversations within your communities without getting exiled oh gosh this is this is such a great question and it's something i've struggled with my entire life um and and it, it sort of reminds me um Right. On the one hand, you have people who say, oh, yeah, Marx should be accessible and everybody should read Marx, even the workers. And on the other hand, it's like, actually, you don't really need to read theory to know that people should be appropriately compensated for the work or that like medical care should be accessible to everyone. Um, and I say this to by uh, by way of analogy to say that this is something I personally struggle with. On the one hand, I think it's like deeply paternalistic and didactic to say, um, you know, this is the only way things are, this is how reality or experience or systems should be approached. Um, But on the other hand, I also think that we do um, just in general, a piss poor job of providing people with the necessary tools and resources to appropriately navigate the information landscape in which we inhabit. Um, Mm -hmm. And not only that, but we also um, live in a culture and in a society that um, leaves extremely little space for this kind of deliberate exploration. and so it's it's something I personally struggle with a lot because, you know, how can I conceivably fault someone for not taking the time to intellectually delve into these subjects in a way that um, reflects depth and thoroughness and consideration when they can barely keep their lights on, they can barely feed their kids, you know, mm-hmm. um, you know, I, I, and again, this is I do think that there is this predilection to basically individualize what are ultimately systemic or institutional problems. Um, and it's something I struggle with so much. And, and I mean, I, to be honest, like it's something that AI and generative content is only adding fuel to the fire for, because yeah. at this point, our information landscape is is or is about to be so overwhelmingly saturated with generated content that, um, right. you know, even someone, I mean, candidly, like as someone who is literally trained in information science and informatics and information theory, um, I mean, even I have trouble navigating it. And if I have trouble navigating it, I can't conceivably imagine what it's like for someone who is in uh, more precarious situations without the kind of background and learning necessary to navigate these these circumstances. Um, yeah, so let me, let me ask I about struggle this. with it. Yeah, let me ask you about that, because I think that, like, putting that responsibility on individuals is just, like, psychologically implausible, if nothing else. And so, you know, I end up in a place where I would like people to be allowed to, you know, do psychedelics and experience things, but I also want to ban QAnon and Alex Jones and, and like, mm-hmm. conspiracy theories from websites and stuff. Um, how do you how do you feel about, like, look, we should have spaces where people can explore various kinds of ideas, but also if these ideas are regularly leading people into like Holocaust denial, we're going to just shut that group down. (laughs) Um, Are you okay with that kind of like approach to regulating the epistemic environment so that people aren't drowning in misinformation? You know, it's a, it's a very good question. Um, Again, 
I think that part of the reason we see the slide into this sort of conspiracy thinking is, again, because we lack these frameworks or paths for people to navigate these experiences in modernity. And so um, where these paths do exist is in the conspiracy culture, right? Like we have not seen the emergence of, I mean, even a curriculum of some kind around navigating these experiences without sliding into Holocaust denial or QAnon. And I think that this is one of the major failings and fracturings of, um, I don't want to say progressives, but basically sort of the spiritual community in general. Um, that mm. that there is almost, it's it's so, this is such a, a, a difficult thing. Um, and it's on it very candidly, it's a subject I think about a lot, but still do not have very well-formed opinions about. Um, because I feel like it's just this complicated tangle of economic and social factors and cultural factors um, that almost invariably create the environment where people make that slide, where people go from shopping at Whole Foods to going to yoga studios to not getting vaccines to thinking, you know, how the mm -hmm. Holocaust didn't happen and COVID is fake or whatever. Um, mm -hmm. And it's, it's deeply troubling, right? It's deeply troubling. And it also, you know, I, how do you even, how do you even get people to turn back once they're in that space? Because one of the things, you know, I, I have a, I have a, a friend who was at one point a very ardent 9-11 conspiracy theorist and he is no longer mm -hmm. but we've talked about sort of the path back um and, and this speaks to a broader cultural and social thing which is i think we have very poor we don't have good paths for reconciliation and contrition in our culture um mm -hmm. and as a result you know when you have someone who has one of these outsider opinions or beliefs the, the general response is to denigrate them, to insult them, to call them stupid um, or less than. And um, like, and I am as guilty of that as anyone. Like I have a long history of, of being that extremely acerbic um, and insulting responder to those views. But I've, I've come to grow very much in my compassion and view of people with these ideas and also think that there's basically critical work to be done around providing pathways back uh from these ideas because uh i can i can tell you pretty categorically like insulting and attacking people with these views does the exact opposite it makes them far more ardent believers it makes them much more cohesive um in a conspiracy community um and i think just uh continues to to further the broad polarization that we all experience well i was gonna how, wrap up with a question would, about i was, yeah, I was gonna ahead. ask you how you would answer this question because i would love to know your thoughts on this well, I was going to say is I think this is something we could talk about um, a little bit in, in the VIP room because I was going to wrap up with a question about sort of what advice would you give to both folks in your community trying to deal with these issues, but also folks like me outside of these communities trying to communicate with people in these in these rooms. But, it's you know, that was a very, I think, valuable answer and one that, you know, at least personally tracks with my views about a kind of radical compassion approach. And maybe we can mm -hmm. talk about sort of radical compassion a little bit um, some afterwards. But are, like in, in the time we have before I have to torture you here, are there any final bits of like advice for, you know, compassionate um, debunkers that you would recommend that you think are like practices that really do help people feel like you're not, you know, uh, just waiting to kind of jump on them for, for believing false things? Yes. Yes. Um, you know, this is this is a personal journey I have taken very, very seriously in my own life. If 
the version who I was 10 years ago is very different from who I am now. Um, and, and I think part of it, frankly, has come from recognizing my own wounds and doing the own deep inner work to sort of heal from these traumas and these reactivities. Um, and, and I think, uh, I mean, if we're going to go from, you know, hearkening back to the question you asked me about how my views changed, it is so easy now for me to see um, I mean, gosh, I can't believe I'm even going to say this, but it's so easy now for me to see God in every person I meet. It's so easy now mm. for me to see uh, the depth of people's suffering, quite frankly, and their woundedness and how honestly, how plainly people carry this, including myself. Right. Like when I look at some of my own behaviors, I, I, I basically see my own wounds projected out um, and being honest with myself and my own healing journey and grief and trauma has in turn conferred me with an enormous amount of sensitivity and respect for the wounds and pain that so many people carry and, and just how, um, how desperate most people are for that pain to be recognized and acknowledged in a way that isn't exploitative. Um, and, and so, you know, I'm, what, what I've kind of fallen back to, if any, if you or if anyone else is familiar with Richard Schwartz's internal family systems, is this idea that like there's no bad mm. parts. There's, there's no bad elements to people. There are not bad people. There are people that have done and developed um, maladaptive coping mechanisms to contend with, confront and process and integrate from enormous amounts of trauma that, and this is not, you know, the, like everybody has enormous trauma. We live in a deeply traumatized society. Um, and, and, you know, I think if I were to give advice to anyone, it would um, really to focus and develop a sense of fearlessness, right? To, to be less afraid, because when I look at my own wounded behavior, I always see fear at the heart of it, like fear of more pain, fear of being caught or discovered or someone else seeing my own wounding. Um, and when you get to this heart of fearlessness, I think it also allows you to totalistically show up for other people, even if they have grandly divergent views on the world or in politics. And I think that that's, you know, really where meaning is found and where connection is found. And I think, quite frankly, if we're going to navigate the, the rapids ahead uh, with humanity, we have to do that for each other. Like it is it is going to be critically necessary for us to learn to recognize um the, the value and depth of one another's experiences and take it seriously because the only way we're all going to make this is if we all work together. That's a really wonderful final point. Unfortunately, I now have to inflict more trauma on you. Uh, so I'm here for it, man. I'm into it. <laughs> yeah, no, this is great. I appreciate all of those thoughts. Uh, unfortunately, this means it is now time for the enlightening round. Enlightenment comes from within. And I have a special surprise. Oh, boy. We're going back to real or not real. Okay. So for folks who are not familiar, I'm going to give you a list of things. And you are simply going to tell me, are these things real or not real? All right. Um, we have abandoned the the trolley boogaloo. It is not quite working. Um, and and this was the, this always worked a lot better in my mind. Um, so, but we're we mixed it up. We've got some new things for you to tell us whether they are real or not real. Give um, it to me. You cannot hedge. Nothing like that. All right. It sounds like you're ready. I'm so ready. okay. Um, first thing, bodies, real or not real? Real. Okay. Minds, real or not real? Real. Free will. Not real. Luck. Real. Demons. Uh, fuck. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um. Oh, I hate this. Not real. <laughs> Afterlives. Real. Truth. Not real. Beauty. Real. Justice. Not real. And finally, hope. Real. All right. You survived. How do you feel? Man, I, I am in a perpetual state of ontological crisis, and I got to tell you, I love it. I love every mm. second. I was born for it. That's good. We're here to crack some eggs. Um, so I really appreciate you coming on, Leah. Do you want to let folks know real quick where they can find you on the interwebs? Of course. I have a huge internet footprint. You can find me on Twitter at Leah Prime. Uh, you can also find me on leahprime.substack.com. I host on Wednesday evenings, 9 p.m. to 11 p.m. Eastern, The Invisible Night School. We talk about high strangeness, ufology, the numinous, uh, etc. And I also have a forthcoming independent project called Version Zero. That should be debuting sometime in the next couple months. Awesome. And yeah, we will talk about some more of your projects in the VIP room. Um, folks, if you want to hear a little bit more weirdness, uh, come hang out. Um, otherwise, thank you so much for listening and appreciate it and see you all next time. As a human, I was ill-equipped to thank you. But as myself, you have my everlasting gratitude. Thanks again to our listeners and patrons who make this show possible. Thanks to our new monthly Voidling, Key, and our new monthly avouts, Sean Dennis, and I once was a big G, but now am a bigger G. And as always, I'd like to thank our top tier patrons, our Archon level patrons, give to modestneeds.org, then visit deepfakestop.com, excuse me, uh, Alex Benishek, Serious Inquiries Only, Lawrence Shielding, Dude, Fix the Vote, a wise Zen once said, you can't be neutral on a moving train. Jesse Urbinowitz and Brenda Goodman. And all the thanks to our remaining Archduke-level patron, Big Easy Blasphemy. Thank you all so very much. I really appreciate the support. Uh, if you'd like to support the show, please check out my other show, Philosophers in Space, with my co-host Callie Wright of the Queer Splaining Podcast. While you're at it, check out our wonderful editor, Louisa Lyons's filmed live musicals podcast leave them all a five-star rating and a review on your podcast app you can also follow me on twitter at etvpod or email me at voidpod at gmail.com and if you notice a small void growing within you consider supporting us financially at patreon.com slash embrace the void just four dollars a month gets you early access to episodes bonus vip content but most of all whether you're dealing with emergence or emergency you are the void and the void is you 